0: so grateful that Dick and I were able to sit down together for this conversation and talk about his own personal journey with how IFS found him in his therapy work and what is IFS. He goes into the nuts and bolts about parts and the self, all of that. And then we dive a little bit deeper into what is self and what are the various qualities of self how do we experience self and then dick shares what he does on a daily basis to really turn in and connect with his parts and his self energy this was such a joy and a privilege to be able to sit with dick and have this conversation so i really hope you enjoy it and let's get to it thank you so much dick for for being on today i really really appreciate it i know you're super busy i know you got a lot going on with spreading the word of IFS. So I appreciate this time.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Natalie. And I appreciate your spreading the word as well.
0: Thank you. I it's IFS is something for me that has been a true gift. I do feel like IFS over the course of my career has tried to find me a number of times. The first, and the listeners have heard the story before, but I'll share it with you. But the first time I'd ever heard about it was actually, I was in yoga teacher training and my main yoga teacher, she mentioned it. And at the time, you know, I was a therapist working at a university and I had never heard of it at that point yet. This was a while ago. The yoga teacher, she had been engaging in her own IFS work and she mentioned it in our training one day. And it kind of like, I think it planted a seed. Then I went about my, my business doing my other stuff. Then years later, I was beginning my own private practice work, and a client was sitting there with me one day, and they had brought in the complex PTSD workbook, and there was a page in that workbook dedicated to talking about IFS, and they were like, you know, I read this part in this workbook, and this really stood out to me, and I'm curious if you know anything about it, and I said, no, and I said, I don't even have that workbook. Let me me purchase that workbook. That was, I think, the next moment for me in my career and me personally where IFS then really started to grow. And then I just dove down the rabbit hole (laughs) of of IFS trainings that were on Pezzi at the time, you know, and then eventually getting into a level one. And then eventually I got into a level two with you and Martha Sweezy. I was in that level two training through Cambridge. Cambridge Health
1: Alliance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was so grateful to be accepted into that training with you and Martha. It was. That's great. It was so wonderful. And then to be able to witness you do the demos. I find that to be one of the most impactful things for me. I've noticed in these trainings is observing the demos.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the strength of ours that we, we try to demonstrate what we're talking about rather than just talk.
0: And I'm very much a learner by seeing and doing and mm-hmm. actually seeing it being done rather than just talked about. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's where for me, those demos have been really, really helpful. So I'm grateful to, to you and to all the instructors for being willing to put yourselves out there and do that for us. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd love to, to hear from you, if you would be willing to share, how did IFS come to be for you? And I ask this question when I interview other people who are involved in the IFS community, I ask it in this way of, did IFS find you or did you find IFS?
1: Uh, I think IFS found me because I was to go way, way back when I was in college. My father worked at a place in Chicago called Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's medical center and he got me a job on the psych unit and uh so i would was an adolescent unit so i would hang around i was what was called an occupational therapy aide. so i would hang around with the patients and play games with them and i got pretty close to some of them and and they would tell me about their family situation and and then it was a very psychoanalytic unit and they would tell me about their sessions and in their sessions, they wouldn't talk anything about their families, and I'd be on the in the day room when the families would visit on the weekends, and I'd see how horribly they were being treated, and yet the therapy had nothing to do with that. And I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so then I graduated and heard about family therapy, which was a kind of new profession at the time, and got very excited about that and. Long story short, went ahead and got a PhD in that at Purdue and was one of those obnoxious family therapists that thought we'd found the Holy Grail and that people who were mucking around in the inner world were wasting their time because we can fix all that by just changing these external systems and decided to try to prove it. I got a job at a place called the Institute for Juvenile Research, which was a state-sponsored think tank. do not exist anymore, really. It's part of the Department of Psychiatry at university little at chicago so we had lots of time to watch each other work and brainstorm you know, it was just the perfect setting and so i decided to do an outcome study with kids who had bulimia as a problem and uh, so i could prove that family therapy was the bomb and <laughs> it turned out that it didn't work because i could mm. reorder families just the way the book said to and Still, my kids didn't realize they'd been cured, and they kept binging and purging, to my chagrin. And so out of frustration, I began asking why, and they started talking this, what to me at the time was a strange language of parts. And they would talk about this critic that would drive them crazy, and that would bring up a part that made them feel worthless and young and alone. And that part was so distressing that in would come the binge to get them away from that. But the binge would trigger the critic, and would trigger external critics. So that would go right to the heart of the that young, empty, alone, worthless feeling. And then they'd have to binge more. So they were tied up in that. Right. And as a systems thinker, this sounded familiar. It sounded like the kind of sequences of interaction that I was tracking in families and trying to inter- interrupt. But I was also at the time assuming what most of the rest of the field assumed about them, that. The critic was some kind of internalized parental voice, and the binge was an out-of-control impulse, and I was making the mistake that most of the field still makes, which is to have my clients argue with the critic and stand up for herself and control the binge. And these kids were getting worse, but I didn't know what else to do, until a client who not only was binging and purging, but also was cutting herself on her wrists and That was driving me crazy to have somebody do that on my watch. So I uh decided one session I wasn't gonna let her leave until the part had agreed not to do it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I was there's a gestalt empty chair technique that I'd heard about. So I was having her be the part in a chair separate from her, and then have her be herself in the other chair. And I would talk to this part and have her talk to the part. And badger it and badger it about not cutting her and finally agreed not to. Then I opened the door to the next session and she had a big gash down the side of her face. And I I just collapsed emotionally and spontaneously said, I give up. I can't beat you with this. And that was a turning point in the history of this work because the part said, I don't really want to beat you. And I shifted out of that coercive place to just being curious. Why do you do this to her? And the part talked about how when she was a, a child, it had to get her out of her body, and it had to contain the rage that would get her more abuse. And this was an efficient way to do that. And with that, I shifted again. Now I had a kind of appreciation for the heroic, heroic role it played in her life. And and it broke into tears, because everyone had vilified it and tried to get rid of it like I had met. Somebody was listening to its story. and so from that point on i just kept having clients try to listen to these extreme parts and again at the time it was the bulimic parts the parts that made them binge and purge and the critics and and just not get reactive just get curious and yeah love how they're trying to protect and they would always disclose that we could let them know that we saw them as heroes
0: and i'm curious because I know how long would you I mean it's been a evol- this model now has been evolving for 40 years 40 years and so it's a living breathing thing right it's it's not something that's just oh here's what it is and here's you know from the beginning it was like this i'm assuming for you this was many years of experimenting and trying things out and asking clients to maybe try ask it this or do it this way. And then you talking to it. And, and that takes a lot of courage.
1: Well, again, I was lucky because I was in this think tank environment and there were a couple other people who got interested with me. My family therapy colleagues saw me as uh, a traitor to the cause focused inside of people working with individuals. Um, But I had some students who got interested, and so they would try. They would try it out with their clients too, of just helping clients uh, reverse their approach to these parts and
0: mm-hmm.
1: listen to them. And so, with that little study group, we just started to, like you said, do trial and error. And, you know, there were points where I thought, well, yeah, maybe it's true. The critics aren't what they seem, and they're protective, but. What about parts that cut? Or what about parts that have molested little kids? Or what about, so I just tried to try it out with more and more extreme parts, rooting clients that were more and more extremes. And can this be used with people with these heavy duty diagnoses like BID and borderline personality and all that. So I, I just kept expanding, testing to see how much of this is universal.
0: And I'm curious too, you know, as you were introducing this way of turning towards and turning in towards, you know, what we call these parts of ourselves, did you notice, cause I know in your, in your story that you just shared, that seems like the client was naturally kind of starting to use that language with I which I feel like a lot of us as humans naturally do anyway, you know, we say statements like, Oh, a part of me wants to go do this, but a part of me wants to stay on the couch, you know, and it's acknowledging even kind of in this just not fully aware way that there are these multiple energies within us that hold maybe different opinions, viewpoints, jobs, roles, you know, and I'm curious, was there pushback from clients or in the field in this, in this way of turning inwards and kind of being able to have a conversation, right? Because I I think about, because i encounter this with certain people that that come to me for therapy and some of them don't know what ifs is and as i introduce this way of turning inwards for some people it might activate parts of them that hold maybe like the stigma or this negative belief of like the doing that is weird <laughs> you know or like movies show these things about like DID, right? Of like, oh, but if I'm talking to myself, like doesn't, or I, I acknowledge these multiple personalities, you know, and so did you experience that, that kind of push back?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had that within myself too. Actually, I did think at some point, wow, these kids are sicker than I thought. They must be multiple personalities. And that's what I, once I got over that, and then started listening inside and noticed that I had them too and some of mine were quite extreme too. And then I started to try to normalize it in my mind and, and with clients and to see how that went. And you're right, there still are people who uh, who balk at it and feel like they're crazy if they do it. And that's what I I saw that I was up against though. So, the way that multiplicity has been pathologized, mainly from that DID community over the years and, and the way it's been sensationalized in the culture, media, has left people with this idea that if I do talk to myself this way, that means I'm crazy, when in mm-hmm. fact it's the opposite. If you don't talk to yourself, you'll get crazy because right. those parts will screw up your life. We're not fragmenting people. We're actually taking fragmented people and then bringing all these parts back home. And exactly. I was in a department of psychiatry at the University of Chicago, which was very psychoanalytic. In particular, something called um, self-psychology was the dominant focus. And in that, there was this huge fear of fragmenting people. And so mm. I was asked to present at Grand Rounds and I got pilloried by these you know very well-known self-psychology types for fragmenting people
0: and let me what was the fear about that i guess
1: that if you have people focus on these things you're making them stronger and more
0: like likely. you're making the parts stronger As yeah. we would call okay
1: make them more likely to take over and find problems which is true if you do it if you do it in a certain way if you don't do it right yeah so you know in those early days it was challenging because I was getting it from my family therapy colleagues and I was getting it from these analysts.
0: And what kept you moving forward with it, right? Because if you're encountering a lot of that resistance to this way of looking at ourselves and turning in, it would have been very easy to just be like, okay, whatever. And then just kind of let it go and just keep going about what you were trained in, right? As a family systems therapist. So what would you say was the driver for you of, of keeping going with this, you know, because that, like I said, it would have been easy to just stop.
1: Yeah, there are several points where I almost stopped. One was when, as I was experimenting, some kids were having really bad backlash reactions. And I thought, I am doing harm. You know, I, I come from this medical family of first do no harm. And then I got curious. So in terms of what kept me going, I was fascinated. It was very, I was very, I had a huge curiosity about things considered myself a scientist and my father who was a really good scientist always said follow the data even if it takes you way outside your paradigm it was taking me way outside my paradigm but it was fascinating and then as I got better and got better at being ecologically sensitive to these systems and working with protectors and so on and saw the power of it Then I really became committed to, I I got the vision of the possibility of it when I was still pretty young, and that vision carried me past all the pushback.
0: And can I ask, how old were you when, yeah, this all first kind of started coming to you in this way?
1: I was about 33 when I was working with my first client, and all that experimental years was until about 36, I, I got a lot of conviction about it.
0: And that's a hard time. You know, I'm I'm thirty 37 <laughs> right oh. now. And, you know, and I know you have children. And yeah. I have a toddler, you know, young son right now. And it's an interesting time, right? Like in your career, it's you're trying to build something and sustain. And, and here you are. You know, having this gift, I view it as like, like you were saying, coming to you and realizing, wow, this is something. But yet the culture wasn't maybe open to it yet. Just like I feel like how most new things are that are coming forward, right? There's always kind of backlash or resistance to something different. But you persisted and you kept going. And now, fast forward 40 years later here we are, and the IFS is exploding. Yeah,
1: in ways that I never thought it'd be in my lifetime. But yeah, it's it's very gratifying that way. But the other thing that kept me going is my father also gave me some burdens of worthlessness because I had ADD and I was supposed to be a physician. And I'm the oldest of six boys. Three of my brothers are high-powered physicians. And mm-hmm. so I had both parts that were desperate to redeem me and prove that I had value. And when I stumbled onto this, I saw, okay, this can show my father that I, I know what I'm doing somehow. And also parts that didn't care what people thought, were that were trying to protect me from him and other people. And so I kept going. I would kind of deflect all the attack and, and just proceed and didn't care. And that got me through that whole experimental period. But as IFS became a community and I was a leader, those weren't the best qualities in a leader. So I was lucky to have people who confronted me about all that. And, and luckily I had IFS to use to, to change all that.
0: So. Yeah. So as you were just describing that, yeah, I guess what was happening in the back of my mind was uh, wondering would you say, looking back then, that there were, again, like parts of you? That we're really kind of maybe striving towards, we got to make the, or you know, we got to do this. We got to do this. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Like you said, because of that underlying maybe burdened belief that you were worthless. That that.
1: Okay. As proof that I had some value, and I was going to take it all the way if I could, just to prove my father wrong.
0: Isn't that interesting? I, I I've. Had you know these interesting conversations with other people in the IFS community? It's acknowledging that there can be things that we have done in our life that have maybe come from part energy that have maybe been you know driven by burdens, and we can have gratitude for that and appreciation for that, and also the understanding that maybe it's from these parts of us that you know kind of. Led us to keep going. And yes, it was coming from maybe burden part energy. And at the same time, we can have, like I said, gratitude and appreciation for that. And then also, like you're saying, do the work within yourself to turn towards those parts and get to know them. And so they don't have to keep striving, right? Like in that same way, but it can be coming, it can come from an energy of self. Along with having like the resource of these amazing parts, that it can be like a team rather than coming from a part from like a burden, fear of if I don't do this, it will mean this about me. Right,
1: okay. that's exactly right, and that's if I'm proud of anything, it's that I did the work with those parts, so that you know people talk these days about how humble I seem, and it's hard earned. It's it's genuine. I I don't have a big head about it. I'm not craving adoration like I did in the early days. And that's because I've done a lot of work on myself.
0: And that's so important. And that is honestly one of the, one of the many things I really respect about IFS is the openness that you have about the importance about you doing your own inner work. And that is something that I take true to heart within myself. And it's, you know cuz for the first like 8 years of my career as a therapist i wasn't going to therapy i was focusing on my job i was doing my stuff i was you know very manager driven i look back now and just the type of way i was doing therapy and offering coping tools and skills to people in that way which again nothing wrong with those things those things are great and but it was coming from now looking back again like this this manager part as opposed to a self-led Uh, offering and doing now, you know, I have my own IFS consultant that I see every month. I have my own IFS therapist that I see every month. And it's been so important now seeing the impact that that has on me as a human and my personal life, but also the work that I do with clients. So I'm really grateful for you and the other IFS trainers, again, just for being very open and honest, like if you're going to be doing this work with other people, it's important to be having that opportunity to do your own turning in as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, the kind of work you were doing before, you didn't need to be in self or to, you could be in manager parts. But if you're going to invite people to go to these really deep, scary places, that's different. You have to have a very different kind of presence, not or they won't go if you don't have the presence right and when they go you know, to make it safe for them and, and that you know took me a while to get hip to that for quite a while i was just fo- so fascinated with the technique and i thought that was the thing it wasn't so much about me it, i actually was partly for my own personal parts and also uh you know coming from, i wanted to be a big contrast to the indulgences i thought of psychoanalysis and other depth kind of things where it was all about the relationship with the therapist. And here I had found that it was all about self and how self took care of these parts. First, I thought that made me and how I showed up not that relevant. And then I started to see how important it was, not because I became the self to the system, but because if I didn't show up in a, in self, then my it was really hard to get to my client's self. And, exactly. Yeah, it's been an evolution that way too and now um I'm really glad that all the trainers are emphasizing that so much cuz yeah, it's so important.
0: Yeah, it really is. And so do you care to go into now can we talk a little bit about yeah, what is IFS? Sure.
1: Started out as a psychotherapy, but it's kind of expanded. It's a life practice, it's a different paradigm for understanding the mind and for working with yourself and working With the mind and so it has implications now for all kinds of human endeavor. so we're actually trying now to bring it to much higher levels of system and uh, we have a variety of projects to do that so yeah and it's still you know as you're saying it's exploded as a yeah as a way of doing therapy but for me now it's it's much bigger than that and Mm -hmm. Another one of those, I don't know in my lifetime, it'll reach its potential, but it has the potential to change, change a lot of things in the world.
0: It really does. And that's how, you know, when I describe it to people, I don't call it a treatment. I, I say it's a way of life. It's really, yeah, like you said, a way of being. And this isn't something that you just go to a therapist for and they engage in this You know, process with you and then you leave and then you're done with it. It's, it's, yeah, it's a way of living. It's a way of being with yourself and all these beautiful parts of you. And so let's get into kind of just a little bit of the nuts and bolts about, you know, what makes up IFS. And, you know, we've been saying the word parts a lot and the word self. Do you care to go into a little bit about like what are parts?
1: Sure. Parts, for me, uh, other systems would call sub-personalities. So they're full-range inner beings, actually, who have a kind of natural value and talent. And if they're never hurt, or they're never forced out of their naturally valuable states, are great. because they They're here to help us in our lives. But Trauma and attachment injuries and uh, the slings and arrows that come at us through life, force them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that can be damaging, but are the product of the traumas and, and how many of these parts get frozen in time during the trauma. And they take on what I call burdens, which are the extreme beliefs and emotions that came into you during the trauma and attach to the parts and then drive them almost like a virus. And so so we all have them, There's who knows how many, and help us, it's great to have them, but they need to be unburdened and taken out of where they're frozen in the past. And uh, so as a systems guy, I was running into them and I saw commonalities across clients and started trying to put together a kind of map of that territory. And so it turns out that there are parts that are the younger inner children that are before they're hurt are delightful and playful and loving and open and creative but once they get hurt they carry the burdens of worthlessness like mine did or terror from trauma or um, emotional pain from being rejected or abandoned and once they carry those burdens we want to get away from them we we don't want to feel any of that anymore so we lock them in inner basements and spend our life trying to avoid feeling any of that again not realizing that we just locked up our most precious qualities simply because they got hurt once you have a lot of what we call exiles you feel more delicate the world seems more dangerous so other parts are forced to become protectors and some of them protect you by trying to organize your life manage your life so that you don't get triggered your exiles don't get triggered so no one sees them try to put up a good front try to keep you achieving a lot so to counter the worthlessness or look perfect so you don't get rejected again there's a whole lot of different what we call manager roles and then when those don't work and you do get triggered somebody's got to immediately go into action to put out that fire of emotion that's blasted out of your basement. And so we have other parts who immediately go into action to try and deal with the emergency and they'll do it in extreme ways because they often think you're going to die if they don't do what they do. And so they will do whatever it takes to get you away from that pain or shame or terror and often are very impulsive and don't care about the collateral damage to your body or your relationships. We call them firefighters. They're reactive. They come in at a different point in the sequence. The managers are preempting anything that triggers the exiles. Firefighters react after the fact. Right. So that's the very simple map, protectors, managers, and firefighters, and then these exiles. And that's held up really well over these 40 years and kind of amazingly well.
0: Yeah. And I was just in the back of my mind, you know, going kind of back to the story that you shared with the young client that you were working with when you were in your early thirties, who was binging and cutting. And that example, would you say, cause I feel like sometimes it can depend, like we could say binging or purging is a, a manager. And then sometimes depending on the energy of it, it could be a firefighter, right?
1: Yeah. It's not so much the energy of it as it is the point in the sequence. So If your binging is uh, preemptive, in the sense of trying to keep your exiles down, and kind of chronic, then it's a manager. If it's reactive, if you're binging because an exile got triggered, in in the aftermath of that, then it's a firefighter.
0: In order to get to know that that intention, right? You'd have to turn towards the part and also ask it, you know, these various questions, but also like you said, see where it's at in the sequence.
1: Exactly right.
0: And so then we have self with a capital yeah. S. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is one that I get a lot of questions about with the clients that I work with. And when I am talking about IFS and I bring up self, I feel like yeah, that a- that activates a lot of curiosity <laughs> which is a self-like quality, but it can also come from a part, maybe an intellectualizing part, right? That's trying to like figure, wait, what is this? What is it? And so, yeah, can we spend some time talking about self?
1: Sure. I stumbled onto yeah, as I was, you know, once I got hip to the fact that these parts aren't what they seem and they deserve to be listened to, I would try to get my clients to listen to them rather than fight with them and was having trouble with that so let's say I'm trying to get you to listen to your critic rather than fight with it and you start to and the critic softens and it's starting to tell you a story and then suddenly you're furious with the critic and everything goes south and it seemed to me like in family sessions I'm trying to have two family members talk to each other and third party jumps in and everything goes south And we learned in family therapy school to get that third person to step out and not interfere when it could do that conversation would go well so as i'm doing this with you and you're suddenly angry at the critic i'm thinking that must be another part that came in so with clients i began asking could you find the part that just jumped in and could you get it to just relax back and let you continue the conversation and as I would get that succeed in doing that, because many clients could do that, it was like this other person would pop out and the conversation would go well because the critic or whatever part we were working with would suddenly feel cared about, you know, whereas they were earlier feared or hated. And uh, I would do the same process with other clients. It was like the same person popped out with these C word qualities of calm, curious. Uh, confident relative to the part, and even compassion for the part that they'd previously hated. And they would also uh, be creative in how they related to it. And they would have clarity about what its image now, and they'd feel connected to it and would be cur- have courage to, to uh, go to what it protected. And yeah. So, yeah, as I compared notes with a lot of different clients as they access this. And when I, when they would access this other, what seemed to me another part, I'd say, what part of you is that? And they'd say, that's not a part like these others. That's myself. I came to call that the self with a capital S to distinguish it from the general use. And you know, now 40 years later, it turns out that everybody's got that in there, It just knows how to heal. and is just beneath the surface of these parts such that when they open space it pops out spontaneously and it has these eight c words as qualities you know it shows other qualities too like joy and perspective and but the eight c's turned out to be the ones most relevant to the healing endeavor
0: and so it sounds like that was just kind of like an organic experience kind of just like with again the beginning of of this model in general just you taking note of, okay, so what are, how would they describe what they're feeling within themselves as, you know, I asked them to ask that the part of them that's frustrated or angry or scared to step to the side, to step back, what is there? And it sounds like you were just kind of collecting data and information about what these clients were, how they were describing what was there when those other parts stepped to the side.
1: Exactly. Yeah what qualities I saw in them, but also how they were describing themselves.
0: And with self-energy, would you say that we are all born with those qualities already there? They're already there within us. They're not something that we have to resource or or learn. How would you describe that?
1: Yeah, I, I do believe that, that we're born with parts, either manifest or dormant and and we're born with a lot of self actually like little kids are in that that curiosity all the time and so a lot of the other sea words when they're not hurt and they get hurt and as they get hurt their burdened parts take over more and they have far less access to self and and get frozen in those times when they get hurt the parts do
0: Right. I'm curious about this too, you know, cause I have a three and a half year old right now and he's in a very interesting developmental phase <laughs> where it's, I think I can see his imaginations expanding and he just has this personality now. And I, you know, I observe him and I also observe like what comes up within me in relation to where he's at developmentally and what I can see, like, okay, I think maybe this is a part of him that is experimenting with being present and how that feels and is it being shamed is it being rejected is it being appreciated you know and then i also am able to witness these self energy qualities that are there within him and and you know I, I again it's i can just see where if someone's a kid and they're born with these qualities they're there but let's say the caregivers that they have aren't parenting from their self-energy, right? Let's say it's coming from parts of them that have also been burdened in their childhood. So they have a lot of manager parts or firefighter parts, and they're doing a lot of shaming or rejecting and, or neglecting. How is that impacting the kid's system? Right. And I know you kind of touched on this just a little second ago, but what's the impact?
1: Yeah. So Parts of kids get exiled, not just because of trauma, but also because the kid is given the message by parents
0: that that part's not welcome. Or also that self-energy is not welcome.
1: Self-energy isn't either, yeah. And that happens all the time because so many parents are dominated by their parts and, and don't like certain of their other parts. So when the kid acts like one of the parts they don't like inside of them, then that part that doesn't like it is going to give that message to the kid and the kid's going to have to exile their own. So, yeah, that's the process. And we're really lucky now that there's a big self-led parenting movement within IFS, like Seth Copal and Dr. Becky and, you know, a lot of people are helping parents with their parts and helping them relate to the kids
0: from self. Exactly. And I'm curious too, would you say that, you know, does self-energy grow as we get older or is it, we're just having more awareness because we're getting to know our parts and how would you describe that process of self-energy as we get older?
1: Yeah. Self-energy doesn't grow so much as, as you get older, you, you can embody more, you have more uh, of a body for, as a container, you have a bigger brain so it can manifest more it's still there it's not that it's not different it doesn't develop it's just better able to to manifest and ideally as you grow your parts can stand down more and more and allow more self-energy to manifest but that's you know not true for lots of us because right. they got to protect
0: and so let's say if someone does through does go through something traumatic, let's say it is like a specific incident that happens. What, what is happening to self energy? Where is the self in that moment?
1: That's a question that lots of parts ask when you go back and you have, like, if I were to have you go back to when you were a kid, a young kid and somebody bullied you. And so you locked up this part. And so you went to the part. A lot of times the parts said, where were you when I needed you? Why didn't you protect me? And that's, that's a good question. A lot of times, spontaneously, you would say from self, I wish I could have, I just didn't have the body to do it. That, and the parts seem to understand that. Or I wish I could have, but the scared part took over and blocked me.
0: Yeah, that it, it it's still there, right? It's not that it's gone forever or it was you know, killed or anything like that. It's still there. It's just that in certain experiences and moments, like you just said, it just maybe wasn't able to be fully present yeah. and these other parts or part had to take over and do its thing.
1: Yeah, that's the big difference between IFS and most other psychotherapies that most others are, are attachment-based. And mm-hmm. while I love many things about attachment theory, they made one big mistake, which I've had countless debates with people like Vessel Landerthal around, And that was that To have any of these C-word qualities, to have that self, you had to have gotten it from a relationship. It's not inherent in us. And so you either had to get it from a parent, or if not that, then get it from a therapist or get it from a partner, but it's not in you. It has to be developed. And that just turns out not to be true.
0: And, And I've witnessed that in people that I've worked with where they may have had horrible upbringings. And they maybe had a part initially in our work that expressed that concern, where they said, like, what if I don't have that? What if I don't have these self qualities? And, and that's where I've really come to love as well, your hope merchant, you know, aspect of IFS two, which is letting the person know it is there. It is there. And I fully believe that. And You know, using these kind of stories to help people maybe see, I use this one, and it came from Tara Brock, and it she wasn't talking about IFS, as far as I know, but it was a story that she told about the golden statue of the Buddha, and it got covered up with plaster because... A war was about to happen in the city and they didn't want these intruders to take or destroy their golden Buddha statue. So they covered it up with plaster to make it look like it was just, ah, it's just a plaster Buddha. And they didn't touch it, right? It didn't get harmed in that way. But over time, the people forgot that it was made of gold underneath until eventually one day it got cracked and they looked in there and they saw, oh my gosh, there's a sliver of gold And then eventually they, you know, remove the plaster and it was like, oh, it's made of gold. (laughs) And so I kind of, I heard that come from her in one of her talks and that just really stuck with me. I was like, oh, I feel like that's what happens within our system. That's
1: right. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a crack to to open the door to it. It's totally there. and It's made of gold.
0: It's made of gold. And I, you know, here's a question I wanted to ask you too. And can at, Can we see self within ourself? If it's coming maybe from the perspective of a part. Parts
1: can see self. Self is your seat of consciousness. So you can't, you can't, if you're in self, you can't see yourself.
0: But let's say if someone's really blended with a part of them, could they say, oh, I see this, I see this light, or I feel this energy. Parts
1: will do that. and. You can say, uh, like, it's very effective sometimes when you get to certain parts and you say, turn around and look at you. And they will see that you're not a little kid and you actually are grown up and can help them. But you're still not seeing that. It's the part that's seeing you. You're not seeing yourself.
0: Because what I've encountered sometimes is situations where I'm working with someone and they might say or be experiencing, like, oh, I can see I self. can see self. Yeah, I can see that's self. A
1: what we call a self-like part.
0: Yes. Okay. And that's what I've asked them to notice or to ask, and it ends up being that.
1: Yeah, always. So that's one clue to finding self-like parts.
0: And so can you talk real quick about, yeah, what is a self-like part?
1: It's a, a key manager that thinks it's you and is trying to do everything for you and emulates qualities of self. Um, sometimes very cleverly, and uh, they're sometimes very hard to detect. But for some people, when they do find out it's not their self, it's a big identity crisis because they really thought it was.
0: Right. I I felt that to an extent with when I started shifting my work, (laughs) you know, from a place of a manager-driven therapy style to then IFS. It took a number of years.
1: From these self-like parts, yeah.
0: Yeah, and again, I just have so much love for that part of me, you know, because she, she's done some really beautiful work and has taken on a lot of resources and information, and now I feel like I have this relationship with her where I, I know that she's there and I know that she holds this information about all these different things that I've gone through with meditation instructor training and yoga teacher training and all these different things, DBT coping skills trainings, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, those are all beautiful resources. And like I mentioned a little bit ago, now I feel this connection with this part of me where I can feel, I can feel her now, if she's the one leading, if she's the one taking over in a session, I can, I can, see her, I can sense her, I can hear her, you know, and then I can ask her to step back and give space. And then I can, you know, invite her to be sitting there maybe next to me. If I do feel like, you know what, maybe, yeah, I could offer this person this, you know, type of meditation or uh, way of grounding or whatnot, but it come from a self-led space and not from uh you know sometimes maybe energy that she had which was more of like I have to give you all these things in order to make sure you don't feel that anxiety anymore.
1: Yeah. yeah. Those parts make wonderful assistants but terrible masters.
0: And that's what I've learned. And now it feels so wonderful because instead of being like, oh she has to disappear. No, she doesn't have to disappear. Like you said, she can be an assistant and she yeah. can be there providing me with this information that is beautiful information.
1: What we're offering therapists is a way to love being a therapist, because when you can be in self for a whole session, it's almost like you're meditating, and and you're also uh, feeling so privileged to be invited into your client's inner sanctum and, and watch their self do such amazing work. It's, it's very uplifting.
0: It's such a gift, and that's something that, I again, I'm so grateful for about this model is... I have never felt more connected to someone that I'm working with when I'm, you know, doing this work because we're getting to be present with them in a way that is so intimate, but not invasive, right? You know, it, it it's, you're there, you're witnessing, you're there providing this self energy. And I'm just, so yeah, I'm so grateful. Anytime I have that experience with someone that And I get that too, that people will look at me at the end of a session sometimes and be like, what is this like for you? And I'm like, it's beautiful.
1: (laughs) Yeah. People come out and I've got tears in my eyes and it's very moving to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And I'm curious because I get this question too, from people that I work with of, okay, so yeah, I'm coming in here and you're helping me guide me. And then, but a lot of the time I'm living my life outside of your office. And I'm wanting to build these relationships with my parts and connect with my self energy. Anything you would share in regards to how you go about uh, having daily, you know, relationships with your parts and connecting with your self energy?
1: Yeah, people do it differently, but what I do is in the morning when I wake up, I lay in bed and I'll just kind of go over the day, and I'll check in with all my parts and see how they're feeling about the day and and then if there are parts that i'm actively working with i'll just see how they're doing today and so i just have a kind of parts meeting in the morning as a meditation if some part clearly needs work then i'll put aside some time where i'll spend some time with it during the day and and during that early staff meeting sort of i'll say you know i'm doing this podcast with Natalie today and I really want you guys to let me stay and not take over and or whatever I'm doing during the day just remind them that they don't need to handle it yeah it's, it's mostly like that and then
0: mm-hmm.
1: as I go through the day I'll notice if I get triggered and then I'll bookmark that as something I want to follow up on and so like I said earlier it becomes a kind of life practice and you know it can seem endless because I've been at it 40 years and I still have parts that get triggered but as I was saying earlier I'm far less and I'm much better able to be in self most of the time that's a very it's a very nice way to live
0: it is and thank you for sharing yeah your morning staff meetings I like that I think that's something that a lot of people could experiment with and invite I have been viewing mine as uh, almost like we're in an office space. And I'm inviting anyone that wants to come and share, you know, if anyone has a concern, come on in, you know, type thing. Uh, Or if there's someone in particular within me that I've noticed and I'd like to spend more time with, I'll dedicate a moment to have uh, some time with them specifically. And, you know, the other thing too, because I think I mentioned before, I was trained as a meditation instructor specializing in mindfulness. And that was also an interesting shift for me of, you know, incorporating this work of looking at what is coming up in our consciousness as maybe parts, as opposed to just like leaves on a stream, right? And, or a cloud in the sky. And so that's been uh, an experience for me. That's been a beautiful one of still incorporating these meditation skills because meditation's weaved into IFS. It's very meditative. There's a lot of guided meditations that you provide on various apps and ifsinstitute.com and all of that, where meditation can be, like you said, maybe just laying there in your bed first thing when you wake up, turning in, checking in, asking who's there, and also having like scheduled, maybe even like what we call more formal meditations where you're sitting or lying down or even walking and just using that as an opportunity. Yeah. Like you said, to see who's there or to spend more specific time with a part that you're noticing and the other things like mantras and breathing techniques and all of that, I've come to, to use those two as a way to connect in as opposed to pushing away.
1: Very much. Yeah. That's exactly the way I see it all. And yeah, that's my critique of a lot of spiritual traditions and and uh, mindfulness practices. That mindfulness can be a great first step, but you have to shift out of this, this sort of um, negative view of the ego that most spiritual traditions have, as these are just annoyances that you know aren't real. To seeing these are the these are these sacred inner, inner beings that are in these roles they don't like and are trying their best to help you. So if you can make that shift, then all the medica- meditation practices can be incorporated. But that's a big shift for so many spiritualities.
0: It is. And just like it was a shift for me in my therapeutic work, it takes time. It takes time. And knowing that that's okay and to address, I know for me, the parts within me that maybe were frustrated and or confused, it takes time. I think it's experimenting with it and seeing how it feels that can really make the difference
1: yeah that's all i ask of people is just give it a try you know you don't have to put your skeptical parts away ask them to give you enough space to just try it out when people do they find out what we're saying is true
0: absolutely well dick thank you so much for joining me today i've really really loved our conversation
1: good to see you again
0: it's good to see you i could pick your brain for hours so (laughs) thank you for letting me pick at it a little bit. Well,
1: it feels fun to be picked.
0: All right. Well, everyone, I will talk to you next time. Bye.
1: Bye.